Good morning. Please join with me on Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Please pray with me. Lord, we are grateful for your provision during this time of uncertainty. We're grateful for the health that you've blessed us with, and we pray, Lord, that you would sustain that health for all of us during this time. We thank you, Lord, uh, that you teach us to not be afraid, but to go on preaching. And we pray, Lord, for the ability and the opportunity to point people towards Christ during uncertain times. Thank you, Lord, for the ability uh, and the men here that are tech-savvy enough to, uh, to get your word proclaimed through this live stream and for the ability to meet in a, kind of an odd way, Lord, at this time. We pray, Lord, that you will restore our ability uh, to meet together and, uh, and just uh, help us to support each other during this time as we're apart. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about your home at, the t- at this time or what has happened in our singing, but I will testify for, on behalf of the ten here that this has been a joyful time. Uh, it's just ten singing, but there's something about the proclamation of God's word in song and lifting up our voices that is particularly helpful and encouraging to us at this time. Here at FCF, we, we make a, an emphasis on singing, uh, that especially that men should sing. Men should sing as a model for their children, for their families, uh, and it's certainly important to sing in church, but maybe even more so now, uh, it's important to recognize that we need a ministry of song and singing uh, even in the home. In the last couple of days, as we've had more time uh, to be at home together, we've done some singing and we've watched others do some singing. And that's been an encouragement to us. And I trust it's been an encouragement to you. In 1856, in Medford, New Jersey, there was a gentleman by the name of John, Johnson Oatman. Uh, he was born to a, a, a family of Christians. He was involved in the church at an early age. 
And he remarked that one of the most encouraging things was to go to church and to watch his father, who was an excellent singer, sing the songs of the church. Well, Johnson grew up in the church at 36 years of age. He began writing hymns. And up until his death in 1922, he would write over 3,000 songs for the church. One of them being the tune we know as Higher Ground. Let me read for you verse 2. My heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. Though some may dwell where these abound, my prayer, my aim is higher ground. The question might be then, what is that higher ground? Well, our text this morning in Acts 18 gives us, I think, three particular uh, means of higher ground or places of higher ground, if you like. One would be the understanding of God's word, particularly his promises. That's higher ground. Another is the understanding of God's presence with us. That's higher ground. And the third would be gospel conviction. That is, you are convinced that the gospel is true for you. That's higher ground. God's word, his promises particularly, his presence And gospel conviction is the source of our courage to be his ambassadors in days of trial or success. That's the message from his word for us this morning. God's word, namely his promises, presence, ever present, and gospel conviction is the source of our courage to be his ambassadors in days of trial or success. Now we we see in our text this morning trials and a little success. But if we would take our entirety of of Acts 18, we will see that there's success coming from Paul that he has not had in quite some time. And the source of his strength, the source for his courage to proclaim Christ comes from his word, God's word, God's presence, and the gospel conviction Paul has that the good news of Jesus Christ is true for him. We're going to take our text in three parts, 1 through 11 this morning. You see your Bible might break it in a paragraph way there at verse 4 and 5. 1 through 4 as our first point, making disciples in the trenches. Then we'll take verses 5 through 8, occupation and opposition. And then finally we'll conclude in 9 through 11, our God is with us and for us. Now Paul has left the idolatrous city of Athens which you could have seen there if you look in the left of your Bible in Acts 17. He has gone 46 miles to the west of Athens to Corinth, and though he has changed locations, he's not changed much in terms of culture. It is still a very pagan culture, and in many ways, maybe far more. It's a still idolatrous place. It's, a still, it's still a place of influence, much like Athens. Corinth was, and even still you could go there, is a crossroads for sea traffic between the Aegean Sea and the Ionian Sea or the Western Mediterranean Sea. Uh, So there would be people that were constantly flowing in and out of this place. Uh, There was a, a port to their left, if you will, and a port below them, if you will, by a couple miles. Even ships would be portaged across land at times to get to and through these particular seas. It was a place of Roman colony under Roman law. And we know from Paul's letters to the Corinthian church that he would state that there was sinful sexuality there. It was widespread and ingrained into the fabric of the entire culture. Let's just put it simply. Paul was in a hard place. 
He was in a place where he was alone in many ways. His two lieutenants, Silas and Timothy, were not with him. He was engaging a culture. He was engaging a people entrenched and in love with their ways and sin. And yet here he finds himself in Corinth. And in this city he finds two fellow travelers. You'll see there in verse 2 of our text he finds a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. They're fellow travelers. How do we know this? Well, they're originally from Pontus. If you would take a ship from Corinth and you would take it 900 miles plus or minus northeast, you would get to the region of Pontus. If you went northwest from Corinth, 900 plus miles or so, you'd get to Rome, Italy, of which they, where they had been sent because Claudius there, verse 2, the head of Rome at that time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. They're fellow travelers. In hard places of work, in hard places of life, wherever we might travel in our coming days, whatever experiences we may have in our lives, we should, like Paul, keep our eyes open for fellow travelers on the way to heaven, and we should band with them. That's exactly what Paul does. He moves in with them. Uh, They have a similar uh, occupation. They're tent makers. We should also note in verse 2 this idea that Claudius, the ruler of Rome, in A.D. 49 ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Christianity is historically accurate. I don't know where you are uh, sitting this morning listening to this. I don't know your background with the church. I don't know how much you've read the Bible. I don't know what you believe. But let me encourage you to recognize that you can go to Corinth. You can see the, the buildings that Paul talks about here. You can go to Rome, Italy. You can see the things that are taking place. Christianity is historically accurate. We didn't make up this. We didn't decide, hey, we're going to have a live stream on a Sunday morning and we're going to propagate news that we're just making up. No, the Bible, God's word, has given us all that we need here. And it is true from the, the farthest page on the left to the farthest page on the right. And you can find it historically accurate wherever you may go. Who are these two people? Aquila, his wife Priscilla, they're Jews, they're tent makers by trade. We'll see them take on a more prominent role in the book of Acts later on in chapter 18. And for now, we would note, as we already have, Paul, verse 3, lives with them and makes tents with them. In verse 4, he takes his weekends, if you will, in the synagogue seeking to persuade Jews and Greeks. Of what is he persuading them? Of what truth is he seeking to get them to believe. It's the same truth that he preached in Athens. It's the same truth that he preached in Berea. Before that, even Thessalonica, that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of sinful man from their sins and the giver of eternal life. Now, we've noted Paul is alone and that he has found two fellow travelers. And I think it's important for us to uh, draw out what we could entitle um, the doctrine of Christian friendship. That is, it's a most kind gift of grace from our God to give us fellow brothers and sisters that are friends. Now, we we don't know the particular uh, conversations that Paul might have had as he's sewing these tents with Aquila and Priscilla. But we certainly can recognize, because they're compatriots in the faith, 
that it was not a lonely time for them. When Aquila may have had a hard day of doubt that how can we minister the gospel, Paul's there to pick him up. When Priscilla has a tough day of fearful doubts of, will anybody buy this tent that we're making? Aquila's there to encourage them in the Lord. Uh, Paul, uh, going in every weekend, if you will, to the synagogue, preaching, proclaiming, and being resisted, coming back, Aquila and Priscilla, how did it go? It didn't go well. Have faith, brother. The theology of Christian friendship, the importance of Christian friends. If you're a young person, let me encourage you, there's nothing better than for you to have solid Christian friends and there's nothing more dangerous to have a poor choice of friends in your time of life. Paul's going to go on to tell the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Who are your friends? And I would suggest that it's, it's more than just who's on a screen. It's more than just who you know by name. It's more even than the person that you hang out with on a regular basis. It seems clear in Scripture that we should actually have a lot of acquaintances and few f- close friendships. That is, few people in our lives where we can be real with and they're real with us. And we're walking this way of Christianity together. So let me encourage you, look for people in your life, maybe even times of difficulty, where you can bind together with them. I I remember as a young person moving from Bloomington, Indiana to Dallas, Texas at 16 years of of age, leaving some wonderful friends, still friends of mine today, knowing that I'm going to a place. I was homeschooled. I wasn't going to be able to go into a school and find a bunch of people. I knew where we were moving in our neighborhood didn't have many children there, many young people, many teenagers. And I remember praying as I'm driving out of Bloomington, Indiana, my dad at the wheel, praying, God, I just need one, just give me one friend. And I I prayed that for some time. And God provided one friend. Somewhere in this country is a man by the name of Corey Beavers. He was my one friend up until 19 or 20 when God provided more. Look for solid Christian friends who who are committed to the word of God with you, who are committed to the gospel with you. And whether you're a young person, whether you're an older person, be in close friendship with them. Now, if there's the theology of Christian friendship here, there also has to be the drawing out of the theology of work. That is working for the glory of God. Christians should be hardworking. We should be authority-honoring employees. Christians should seek to put out the best product possible. Why? Why should we, why should we work harder than the, than the fellow employee who's not working as hard? Why should we try to do a better job than, than they're willing to do? Because we do all things, whatever we are to do, for the glory of God. Why? Because God has shown the glory of Christ in our hearts And the heartbeat of the Christian is then to have others see that glory in how we live our lives and and, and what we actually do in the grades we get and the product we set forth and the work that we do. Christians shouldn't skip and cut corners. Uh, It's actually a very poor witness. We just bought a house recently and as we have people coming to do some work at our house, it sometimes is easier for me to hire a non-Christian 
then Christians, knowing if Christians are going to cut the corner, it's going to make it a lot more difficult for us. Christians, let's have, let's have a, an excellent witness of doing work for the glory of God. Paul does not engage in tent making so he can be occupied with gospel preaching. That is, he's not making his living with tents so that he can then go do gospel preaching as if there is one part of his life that is tent making he makes his money, he takes that money, he provides for himself, and then on, on the Sabbath he goes over here and he, he then preaches the gospel. Preaching on Saturday, working on these other days. No, no, no. Paul sees his tent making as simply another way, another avenue to advance the preaching of the gospel. Paul's fingers were as skilled at sewing together fabric as his words were implying the hearts of men and women with the gospel. That's what he wanted to do. If he was going to produce a, a, a well-made tent here, even in conversation with maybe those who are buying, he's using that as a way to, to get the gospel to unbelievers. And we should be careful here. The temptation is very easy to fall into this idea of, I have to work right now so that I can go do ministry tonight or this evening or on the weekend or go to that mission trip. Or worse yet, I have to work as an excuse for not doing ministry. Brothers and sisters, either way may be easy to fall into, but both are wrong nonetheless. Uh, there is nothing that we are to do that is not to be used by God as a means of advancing his word. God ordains all of our days. There's no accidental chance or exchange of conversation or meeting. He knows and we should be praying for the grace to be ready for gospel conversations as they come. So who in your workplace could you be praying for on a regular basis? What name comes to mind of someone that you work with on a regular basis, you're building a relationship with that you can be praying for even this week, that as you're talking to them, what did you do on Sunday? It was really weird. I went to this building where I typically worship with God's people. There were nine other people. Or I sat in my house and didn't get to go to church. What did you do on Sunday? And use that as a way to be able to get into a gospel conversation. What client do you see regularly? Which neighbor do you have a good rapport with that you could be praying about? If you have children, submit yourself to them and their accountability. Tell them, we're praying for, for Joe across the street. Or we're praying for, for Beth, who's going to be working with me this week. And ask them to be praying with you for them. Make it a point to get the whole family praying. If you're single, call a friend this afternoon. Call a friend. Call a friend or two at church as, as, as fellow believers and ask them to pray with you for someone specific. And then follow up. Use our work. Use your work, as Paul is doing here, to proclaim the good news of Christ. This is Paul making disciples in the trenches. Let's look at this next portion of the text, 5 through 8, occupation and opposition. Silas and Timothy, as you'll see there in verse 5, they arrived from the province of Macedonia. There were the towns of Thessalonica and Berea. And they find Paul occupied. And I, I think it's important to note how even the text draws out these words. And we recognize that this is not the original language Greek, but it's the English language, but I think it's important to even see Paul was occupied with the word. He's not occupied with tent making, he's with the word. Building a case for our previous point. 
Paul, whether sewing tents or in the synagogue, found his central occupation to be the proclamation of the word of God. And in verse 6, we see what's taking place. He's testifying to the Jews. And as is typical by this point, Paul's in a place. He's there for a period of time. It doesn't take too much time before the Jews begin to oppose him and revile him. Note his response in verse 6. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, this is not the first time this has happened in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, you might turn over to Acts chapter 13, verse 51. There, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. What is this? What's the implication? What's the meaning of this physical action that Paul is doing as he shakes out his garment. In Mark chapter 6, verse 11, uh, Jesus Christ instructed his disciples, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. We might remember in the trial of Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate, Matthew 27, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning with the Jews, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the last text I would take you to is Ezekiel chapter 33. I would encourage you to turn in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 33. We'll read nine verses there. Ezekiel 33, one through nine. This is, if you will, the the Old Testament pattern for what is taking place in the New Testament by way of a physical action. It's a description for us in Ezekiel 33 of the prophet of Christ, a prophet of God, excuse me, Ezekiel, and what he's doing in declaring the blood or the judgment of those who are re- resisting him is to be upon their head. It's, it's not his responsibility. Ezekiel 33, 1 through 9. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land, take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood should be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to, the, speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity. But you will have delivered your soul. Now it's important to recognize the religious Jews, even in Corinth, knew quite well 
what Paul was telling them when he physically took a step back, if you will, and shakes out his garments and makes this declaration to them. Simply saying, my obedience is to God and it's not going to be measured by how you respond to the word I've given you. Your blood be on your own heads. Your responsibility of judgment is before God. It's a heavy word to them. They've resisted them. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And yet Paul has this heart that beats for all the people, regardless of whether they're Greek or Jew. So notice immediately what, he's, what he does. He's, he's in Corinth. He's with Aquila and Priscilla. He, he leaves them and he moves in with another person, Titius Justice. Titius Justice, worshiper of God. Meaning this man is not an idolater like the rest of Corinth. And notice where his house is. It's next door to the synagogue. You can, you can see the tension of this passage growing. Paul's left Athens, he's gone to Corinth. He's found two, he's all alone. He's been proclaiming the gospel, the Jews hate him. Things are getting more and more and more tense, not just with who he is talking to, but also all that is around him in this culture. And then Paul doubles down and says, you guys don't like me? Fine, I'll move in next door. I'll buy the house next to the person that hates my guts because I'm a proclaimer of the gospel. And he continues to do his work. And God blesses it. To the point that the man who is running the synagogue, a ruler of the synagogue, it says, and his entire household comes to faith in Christ. This has got to be burning the Jews. Uh, They're going to bed every night and just cannot get Paul out of their mind. How can we possibly get rid of this guy? We thought we'd resist him. He shakes out his garments and says, I'll have nothing to do with you. Your blood be upon your own head. We agreed because we don't like him. He moves in next door to the synagogue and the guy who's running our synagogue gets saved by him. And his entire household comes to faith in Christ, believes in the Lord and all that Jesus did on the cross, in the grave, rising from the dead for him as a sinner. This is what this man Crispus believes. He's delighted. And notice what takes place even Crispus is one of the few converts Paul baptizes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14 tells us. And then finally, end of chapter 8, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Paul has given himself to the occupation of giving the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone in his life. He's not running from it. He's got opposition all around. And yet he has submitted himself by his conviction of the good news of Jesus Christ that he will not close his lips. Finally, verse 9 through 11. The final point here. Notice what takes place after Paul's obedience. Our God is with us and our God is for us. Verses 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision... Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, 
teaching the word of God among them. First of all, let's ask the question, should we expect such visions? And I think the answer is no. We don't have a need for them. And this is an account simply here in verses 9 through 11 of what Paul experienced, not an instruction of what all Christians will experience. And yet, we also have to recognize that we are no less equipped in times of difficulty than Paul is because we don't get a vision like Paul does. Paul gets a vision. That doesn't mean he's more equipped for his particular time of difficulty than we are for our particular time of difficulty without a vision. We have the Word of God. We have the Bible. We have the living Word of God. And in, especially in times of difficulty, Christians have to ask themselves, are we convinced that this is the Word of God? Are we convinced that, that nothing outside of this is needful for my time? These times of difficulty in our nation are testing our, our belief in this. We have the living word of God. And the word of God to Paul here, we have to note. Look, look at the text, if you will. Look at verse 9. We have the, the, the word of God of, uh, to Paul here, but for the, the specifics, is not special to Paul. Let me explain what I mean. Look at the text, verse 9. Notice, do not be afraid. Okay, there's, a, there's a declaration from God to Paul. And then... Notice he gives some very specific instructions to Paul. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Now look at verse 10. Another general statement. For I am with you. Now he's speaking to Paul. And yet then he gives specifics about Paul's situation. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now if you take out the instruction... And the specificity of Paul's situation. And what the Lord speaks to Paul in a vision is then not a special epiphany, but simply his promise rooted in his perfection to all his people. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. He gives some specific instruction to Paul, but that's the, that's the overall word to Paul. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And that's not a special epiphany for Paul. That's actually something that is God has told us in his word from left to right. Let me read for you Joshua chapter 1, 8 through 9. This is, this is God's word. This is God's message to his people. And it has always been his message to his people. Do not be afraid for I am with you. This is what sets Christianity apart. Our God lives within us. He has saved us. He has created us. Joshua 1, verse 8 and 9. Notice how God calls Joshua to connect the word of God with the promise that God will be with him. This book of the law, he tells Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Note, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And you can go to Deuteronomy and read that. You can go to Jeremiah and read that. You can go to Isaiah and read that. God's word to his people. Do not be afraid for I am with you. Well, prove to me that from the New Testament. 
Matthew 28, verse 20, the final words of Christ to his disciples. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is with us. The God who spoke the oceans into existence is with us. The one who created the sun. We, we didn't get it in Fredericksburg, Texas this morning in terms of uh, an array of beautiful sunrise. But the sun comes up. God calls it to come up. He, he has it do its work. And it paints in unlimited color variations every single day. Uh, look, out, look out your window. Look at the birds. They don't have a care in the world. They have no concept of coronavirus. They have no concept of the budget not being met. They have no concept of cars being broken down or bills not being paid. Why? Because their very existence is to be a unique message to every soul, which is simply, look at my creator. Look to him. Therefore, we need not fear. Now, John Calvin wrote in his institutes about this idea of fear and trusting in the knowledge of God, our creator. Let me read for you a quote from him. Quote, Those who ascribe just praise to God's omnipotence doubly benefit thereby. First, there is power ample enough to do good, power ample enough to do good in thee is in him whose possession is heaven and earth and to whose beck and call all creatures are so attentive as to put themselves in obedience to him. Secondly, they may safely rest in the protection of him to whose will are subject all the harmful things which, whatever their source, we may fear, whose authority curbs Satan with all his furies and his whole equipage and upon whose nod depends whatever opposes our welfare. It's a long quote. It's hard English. Let me read for you one particular point again. Secondly, they, you, may safely rest in the protection of him to whose will are subject all the harmful things which, whatever their source we may fear, whose authority curbs Satan with all his furies and his whole equipage and upon whose nod depends whatever opposes our welfare. Everything is subject to the omnipotence and and power of our God. And he is with us and he is for us. Throughout history, God's people have always struggled with not fearing all heaven and earth that is around us. The child who asked the father, who asked daddy to check under the bed for a noise is not far removed from us adults giving credence to a fanatical thought. And the church has always been about the business of helping articulate the truth of God's word to remind us fearful saints. January 19th, 1563, there was a booklet that was published in Germany. It bore the seal of approval from the ruler of that region, Frederick III. He had asked a 28-year-old young man, Zacharias Ursinus, a professor of theology at the Heidelberg University, and a 26-year-old young man of who was Frederick's court preacher, a man by the name of Caspar Olivianus, 
to prepare a catechism for instructing the youth and for guiding pastors and teachers. And what was published, we now know as the Heidelberg Catechism. And a catechism is simply instruction on the essentials of Christianity. Let me read for you the first question from the Heidelberg Catechism and then the answer. What is our only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of, his eternal, of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Close quote. That's pretty good, but the word of God is far better. Let me give you five particular promises this morning from God's word that if you struggle with fear, you will not want to be without these words. And there are many other but it is, it is the particular medicine for the, 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 the sick soul that may be fearful. Let me just give you five promises from his word. This will get you started. I suggest to you to go open your Bible this afternoon, this week, and find more. But here's five in these particular texts. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. I'll read them for you. I'll go through them fairly quickly. You may have time to, to, to turn to them there. Jot them down, read them later. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Notice the promise. Our God who is with us and for us, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you need comfort this morning? If you know Jesus Christ, God has promised you to give you comfort in your affliction. It may not be a lifting of, of cough. Maybe not the lifting of a financial strain. But he knows what is needed to comfort us in Christ. How about another one in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17? You struggle with sin, as we all do. What is your comfort in this? What's the promise from God for us in this? Verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Will you finish it well? Will you make it to the end of your life and by his grace, be faithful to him. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, a promise of God, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Do you have what you need? Didn't ask if you have what you want. Do you have what you need? If you're in Christ, the answer is Yes. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He cares for us. 
Finally, John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3, a promise given to us by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Christian, we need not fear. Christ is returning, and this is all going to go away at some point. And if you die a physical death before the return of Christ, if you know Christ, your soul goes to be with him in eternity, and one day your bodily body will join with him. This is true. And therefore, this is the truth, the gospel conviction that is the courage that we need in times of trial or success. But let's note this one thought. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you're not saved, these promises, this hope, this comfort that is articulated in this text, do not be afraid. I am with you. As God says to Paul, this is not for you. This is not a promise that you can claim. And the only one that can claim that promise is the one who has had their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. The only one who is, by the grace of God, repented of their sin and trusted in that grace. The only one who's been made alive, made new by the Holy Spirit, who's been born again. Have you been born again? Have you trusted Jesus Christ to save you from your sin? Today is the day of salvation. Uh, Today, we would plead with you. The Bible would plead with you. Trust in Jesus Christ. Paul is as convinced of the truth of the gospel as anyone is in all the Bible to the point that he is willing to put his life in danger every day because he believes and knows that Christ died for him. Therefore, if he dies because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul too will live. Do you have that confidence? You can have it from the Bible this morning. God's word, his promises, God's presence, and gospel conviction is the source of our courage to be his ambassadors in days of trial or success. We certainly recognize Paul is an ambassador for Jesus Christ in the city of Corinth. Paul will go on in writing a letter to Corinth to call the church, us, together to be ambassadors as he was, as he's calling Corinth to do the same. Let me close with a a final passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You might turn in your Bible there. Verse 16 through 21, I'll read this. And then a thought. And we'll conclude. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. For though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal 
through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel conviction that Paul has, that God took the perfect son, Jesus Christ, sent him to earth in obedience, taking on flesh to take our sin, knowing no sin in his perfection, in order that we who have sin might have our sin removed and we might be what he was, the righteousness of God, and what he is even now. Brothers and sisters, this is the courage that we must have. This is the conviction that we must have. The conviction that Jesus Christ has been and made sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That gives us the courage that we need to be ambassadors in days of trial or success. At work this week, with our neighbors this week, the grocery store clerk, the, the whole world uh, seems to be grinding to a standstill. And yet Christians, we still have work to do and confidence that God is for us, with us, and his promises will never be subject, never subject to a virus, a work stoppage, an illness, fear, or failure. He never changes, and he will give us the grace to continue on in faithfulness. It is in him that we gain the courage to proclaim Christ, whatever our circumstances. It may need to begin with you proclaiming the gospel to yourself and then to even others this week. But let's, let's be encouraged to lean into the word this week and trust his grace for our day. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we have submitted ourselves to your word and I plead that that word might be particularly encouraging to us. We didn't pick this passage this morning as any other passage than than just the next one. But it strikes me it's particularly appropriate for our day. Father, I pray for whomever may be listening even now in homes wherever they may be. Uh, For those who who have hearts that are, are fearful. Father, I plead for your grace to allow them to see the glory of Jesus Christ that saved them from the, the, the one thing they most desperately need saving from, which is their sin and your wrath upon their sin. Father, I pray for maybe those who are listening this morning who've never never thought about Jesus Christ or, or, or have and have not been saved. Even now as they are listening, thinking, I, I've got this sin. I'm seeing it. What do I do with it? Father, I pray that whether it's a neighbor, a co-worker, a Bible-laying dusty on a shelf nearby that you would allow them to hear and understand the glory of Jesus Christ for sinners and the call that your word has for us to believe in him and be saved. Father, we thank you for this word this morning that 
is of a particular strength for us. Give us grace even this week as we go out, we live, whether it's with our children, our spouse, our neighbors. Father, help us to be those who are faithful ambassadors in this time of difficulty for the good news of Jesus Christ. All for your glory, we give you all the praise. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.